to the Reads and Writes podcast with Cody Hosterman and Jason Massey. So, Cody, what's going on, man? I hear uh, sounds like you got a little guy that's a little unhappy back there. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, you know typical typical things. But it was uh, we we went back and visited my family last week on the East Coast. You know what? You know what we did. What's that? We went on this mythical thing called an airplane. Uh, it was very, very interesting. Um, I have not been on one for an extremely long time, uh, a couple of years, actually, which is wild considering how much I used to travel. Um, and he did quite well on the plane. I was quite pleased. It doesn't hurt that we were upgraded to Polaris on, on, on United. So that's probably gave him a little bit of extra leg room for the little guy, I think. But um, no, it, was, it, it went quite well. I got to visit a lot of family that I haven't seen in a long time. He got to see his great grandfather which was really cool so it was it was a nice trip we were very happy with with the results and i think he did well he did not do well with the time change on the way home that was a little bit tough but um, overall i think we'll call the trip a success so we can fly again with him so it was cool how are you doing what's up what's new with you jason you know we're planning a uh, a trip to the sand so family's all getting excited about going and riding uh, quads in the sand Kids, my daughter is, they're so, this is, this is their Disneyland. I mean, if you were to ask them where they want to go, they want to go ride quads in the desert. And uh, my daughter actually has a timer for the amount of days, minutes, and hours that she's, she's like, shows me every day, dad, we've only got, you know, five days left or seven days left or whatever it is. So they're getting pretty excited. You know, when you first said the sands, I, I thought you were like, I, uh, didn't they tear that casino down in like the seventies or something? (laughs) But, uh, that's cool. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. We've got a special guest today. Duncan Epping is joining us to, uh, talk all kinds of storage stuff. Duncan, welcome. Hey guys. What's up with you? What have you been up to? Well, no, not traveling at least. I haven't seen much in the past two years, I guess. Um, mainly doing virtual events. And uh, I started a podcast not so long ago and we had Cody on the post- podcast as well. So uh, yeah, that's basically it. It's uh, unfortunately not a lot of travel yet, but hopefully things will open up again soon. I know the travel thing has really been a challenge. I mean, it's I haven't traveled either for years now, just nothing. And, you know, I'm hoping VMworld, you know, is still possibly going to be physical. We'll see. That would be really nice to get back in there and talk with customers and meet with everybody. And hopefully that works out. Yeah. I found it really strange, right? As I said, like I, you know, went and visited people that I hadn't seen in a really long time, but I think there was something wormholy or something about these past two years where it didn't feel like I hadn't seen everyone in two years. I think that I, obviously there's something strange about these times. There's this clearly, right. But just, there was something different about that gap where like it, it's, it seemed like that even though it was a really long and it's been really hard two years, like it just didn't seem like I hadn't seen them in two years. And so um, I'm excited to catch up with all these people in person in conferences. Cause I feel like we'll be able to hit the ground running. I think we're all ready for it. And we've been put in basically like a hibernation, I think for the, for the past two years. So I'm, I'm very excited to start catching up with all these people I haven't seen in a really long time at all these conferences. So it can't start soon enough, I would say. Yeah. I know what it feels like. I don't know. There should be plenty of discussion, right? Yeah, for sure. And I had the same feeling, Cody, it also almost feels like, you know, two years have just disappeared completely. Uh, Maybe not two years, but you know, a year and a half or whatever it is. And I guess the, you know, the thing that makes it difficult for us in Europe is that when you travel between countries, 
the restrictions and the requirements are slightly different than when you travel within the country. Like if, if I would like to uh, fly to Italy, for instance, in order to fly there or fly back, I may need to be tested. That may be different in the US, right? When you have flights within the US. And I actually contracted COVID two weeks ago. I tested negative on Friday. I tested negative on Saturday and Sunday, but on Monday I was positive. But just imagine, you know, I fly out to the US and then, you know, I test, I, I'm able to fly there, but I can't get back anymore because all of a sudden I'm positive on a Monday. It, it's just, I don't know, hopefully those rules will change soon. That will make things so much easier. I just, I, I can't take the risk at this point in time, right? You don't want to be stuck somewhere for two weeks. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing is getting stuck somewhere, especially if you're traveling internationally. Cause like you said, you don't know what country's got what restrictions and that may just ruin your travel. Yep. Duncan, I wanted to talk about some of the new projects that we've got out that VMware has released. And a lot of them have to do somehow with storage. Project Capitola, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Capitola is a uh, pretty new project. It was actually um, mentioned at VMworld. It's kind of like a, a, a preview. And it's slightly different than what people have heard from us so far. And I wouldn't say that it's directly storage related, but I do think it will make a lot of customers that have you know high IO requirements uh, fairly happy because Capitola is all about providing additional memory resources to virtual machines or to workloads. And we're planning on doing that in multiple ways through multiple phases. So I guess, you know, first of all, maybe we can backtrack a bit and explain some of the challenges that customers have been having over the last couple of years, because I think that's probably, you know, gives a better understanding of why we are doing this. I mean, it's fairly easy to buy a, a host with, you know, five petabytes worth of storage capacity. You'll get a host connected to a storage system with five petabytes worth of storage uh, capacity, right? But, you know, getting four terabytes worth of memory is rather expensive. Getting 20 terabytes worth of memory is for most companies almost impossible, even if it even fits in the host. So that's why we started looking into how we could expand or expose different types of memory devices to virtual machines in a way that is in a way that it's abstracted actually. So you don't notice it from a virtual machine or application perspective that there may be a different type of memory sitting behind those physical memory pages that would appear as regular memory pages. So with Capitola, what we're actually planning on doing is a couple of things. First of all, we're planning on uh, enabling you to have multiple types of memory as already mentioned. You know, some of you may know that we have something like CXL popping up hopefully soon CXL is the um, is, is basically a new protocol that that runs on top of uh, PCIe. So it stands for Compute Express Links and uh, Express Link, and it basically enables uh, OEMs and you know memory vendors to connect different types of devices uh, over a PCIe bus and and actually present that as memory, as as if it's just a dim sitting in a dim slot. But in this particular case it's actually going over PCIe. And you know, companies like Samsung, et cetera, are creating all of these devices that will allow them to expose larger amounts of memory. And this could potentially be extremely fast flash as well, as we've seen, for instance, with uh, Intel Optane, and expose that directly to virtual machines through the virtualization layer, so through uh, VMware in this particular case. So that is something that we're actively now uh, working on. And as you can imagine, customers are very excited about that because that would potentially allow us to introduce a type of memory which comes at a 
lower cost. So hopefully for customers that have larger memory requirements that will lower the, uh, the total cost of ownership. Uh, the great thing about Project Capitola is that we're planning on doing that in such a way that we're not actually presenting two types of memory, but we're presenting a single type of memory and we'll have some type of load balancing, some type of balancing happening that may not even be load balancing, but uh, more from a performance perspective, have some balancing happening between those devices where the hot pages actually reside in real memory. And then the pages which, which are not as frequently accessed could potentially be sitting in one of those CXL-based uh, devices. So that is the first phase of the, uh, the project Capitola that we're now working on. And then there's a second phase as well, which I think is particularly interesting because for the second phase, what we're also planning on doing is providing some kind of clustering across hosts for memory. Now, let me re repeat that because this is something that is rather crazy clustering memory across hosts, which basically means that you will potentially be accessing memory over the network and actually writing, for instance, memory pages to a completely different, different host. Again, here we could have, you know, some type of balancing uh, happening where, you know, frequently access pages, uh, access pages are actually locally and less, uh, you know, frequently access pages uh, are uh, remotely, but it opens up a lot of opportunity, especially, you know, for those customers that may have, let's say, four hosts with half a terabyte worth of memory, and they have that single virtual machine that, for whatever reason, requires one terabyte worth of memory, and they're incapable of actually upgrading the host that they have simply because they don't have sufficient DIMM slots, or maybe the DIMMs are too expensive that they would need for that particular host, right? In this particular case, you could simply cluster the memory and then have that virtual machine actually accessing the memory across multiple hosts. So that would you know, be ideal for uh, in-memory databases, for instance, that require an insane amount of memory, but may not necessarily need that uh, low latency for all access towards those, those pages. So yeah, I think you know, Project Capitola is a uh, really interesting project. Now, as I said, it is still in the early stages so we are still developing this. So whether it will make it, at what stage it will make it, and how it will make it is something that I can't comment on today. But as we've already spoken about it at VMworld, you know, I think it's rather safe to say that something will happen in the future. And especially as we see, you know, these OEMs also starting to adopt these newer technologies, you know, it, it's it, it's pretty safe to say that we will follow with something that will enable customers to use it. So Duncan, I, you know, I think, you know, it's an interesting comment right around, not really a storage topic, but, you know, I, I feel like all these, whether it's memory, whether it's, you know, storage, storage, um, I'm using finger quotes, nobody can see me. Uh, it's all, it's all been merging over the years, right? It's really a question of availability and durability of what, where you're storing that data at, at what point in time. And I think one of the interesting problems that we've always faced with these things is complexity or rather when to choose what at what time, right? We've all, all three of us, right, have been in charge of writing best practices for things. And I, I think our fundamental goal when writing best practices is eventually no one to ever have to ask us any of these questions, right? How do we, how do we build this into the software? How can we maybe simplify this? How can we assist our customers uh, through, through, through our platforms to make the right decision? So is, how, is, how is that being managed around or how is that plan to help simplify that process is that a, to your point around some of the load balancing like how 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 can we help how what is the plan around guiding customers to make the right choice while reducing some complexity of choice yeah i think that's a great question and that is also one of the reasons we actually started project capitola i mean some of you probably know that we can have persistent memory 
within a uh, host already, right? So you can already have something like Optane within a host, and then you can assign persistent memory, uh, virtual persistent memory to a virtual machine. Uh, you can access it as a block device, but you can also access it as memory. The problem in that particular case is when you access it as memory, is that the operating system needs to understand it. It needs to be able to leverage it. The application potentially needs to understand it, which makes it a lot more uh, complex. And it typically also means that, you know, it's only a subset of applications that can leverage the benefits of these devices. So that's why, essentially, why we started uh, Project Capitola, because Capitola is essentially this abstraction layer. It's very similar to what we do for storage, local storage devices with vSAN. It's very similar to what we do with vVols, right? If you have a vVol, whether it's NetApp, whether it's pure storage, when you look at it from a hypervisor perspective, it's a vVol, right? At the back end, it may be slightly different because you have a pure storage system sitting there, which may deliver a million IOPS or, you know, whatever it ends up being with certain capabilities. But at the front end, it's still, you know, you still have that abstraction layer. And that's what we're planning with Capitola as well, to provide you an abstraction layer, which will allow all of the applications to actually leverage the memory capacity that's there without actually making needing to make that decision at that point in time where it needs to be stored. So it's going to be a smart system. It's going to make some of those decisions for you. Where are, where are those pages coming from? Are they going to be coming from your local memory dims? Are they coming from your remote memory dims? You know, you're leveraging, for instance, RDMA connections. Or could you potentially be uh, using those CXL connected devices as well across PCIe locally, or maybe even remotely as soon as that is available, right? So that's exactly what uh, Capitola is meant to do, make that your life a lot easier when it comes to making those choices, or at least even avoid making those choices, because we don't want customers to make that decision. We should be making those decisions for you based on what we're seeing in terms of access patterns and reads and writes or yeah, I mean that that's what it's all about. It's 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 very similar to, you know, how VVOLs and other storage systems um, like vSAN work today. We try to simplify your life and make the decisions for you instead of forcing you down a particular path and making it more complex. I just want to let it be known that I am not the first person now to bring up VVOLs on this podcast. So I, I so this <laughs> Duncan has this, put that in the show notes. I was not the first person to bring it up. That's all right. I think it's we got V-balls that we got to bring up. And then what else? That wait, we, there's one more. We'll have to wait and see if it comes oh, up. Oh, don't go me into it. I'm not going to bring it up, whatever it is. <laughs> so Duncan, you were talking about some of the devices. Are we starting to look at a lot of the different NVDIM type devices as well? Like, you know, we've got the NVDIM, NP, all these different types for different tiers. Is is that going to yeah. be something as well that will play into this? Yeah, that definitely will play into that. Um, I, I'm, well, of course, we haven't created a uh, hardware compatibility guide yet or a, an extensive list of all of the different devices that we would support. But I would imagine that all of those different types of devices would be supported. And also the devices that are currently being worked on, as I've already mentioned, those CXL-based devices um, are something that actually starting to pop up right now. So I would suspect that those uh, would also be available. And the other thing to mention here is as well, right, there are of course, new memory technology is also popping up. I mean, most of us have seen DDR4. Uh, we also uh, are starting to see DDR5. And, you know, that world is also moving at an extremely rapid pace. So uh, this is something that will probably evolve over the upcoming 18 to 24 months, I would suspect. Yeah, the, the technology with just Flash in general is incredible because, like you said, different interfaces, different technologies, incredible speed. And I think that's why 
just in general, like Cody said, you know, it's not necessarily just storage. It has to do with all of the the stack. We've got store, we've got connectivity, we've got memory, and we've got, you know, just what you would consider plain storage. But all of these come into the same realm, right? When we're talking about performance within the stack for enterprise customers or any customers, really, not necessarily just enterprise. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing is, of course, is that what we've been seeing in the industry, and I, so, I think that's also interesting, is that there's still, you know, more and more applications popping up that require a huge amount of me- memory, especially with all of those AI and ML applications that we are starting to see right now. Uh, the memory requirements are starting to change as well, right? In the past, you would have a virtual machine with, you know, a single vCPU or two vCPUs and eight gigs of memory. Well, now we're seeing virtual machines with 32 CPUs or 64 uh, vCPUs or whatever it ends up being with terabytes worth of memory. So having solutions like these out there, you know, also that also becomes more important simply to, to lower the co- cost of the uh, the overall solution. I mean, sometimes I like to think about it just like looking at my own machine, like I have 128 gigs of memory on this thing and like I can barely run Slack and Chrome at the same time. So like if you guys start looking at some of these major applications, they, they're, they're going to need more and more. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is crazy, right? It's in the past, people were trying to optimize, you know, the operating system and trying to optimize all the, all the applications that they were running to use the least amount of resources. And it almost seems to be the opposite these days as if, you know, there's plenty of resources. So just use anything you like. It's, it's crazy. I, I think one of the best, one of the weirdest ways I frame it sometimes for myself is I think about some of the old video games and how much they crammed into nothing. I, I think, I mean, you go further, further back, it's, I think it's maybe even more impressive, but I, I grew up on Nintendo 64 and I think about those games, Zelda, th- those whole games are just 22 megabytes, right? And they had like what, maybe two megs of RAM or something like that. That just boggles my mind just absolutely boggles my mind and um but you know these days let's just throw hardware at the problem it works exactly yeah now you're talking like far lapse memory manager right you want to go back that far i don't i, I don't work for a company that sells hardware or anything like that you know, so. Right. <laughs> so you know speaking of connectivity there's another project that's got a lot of interest in uh monterey Right. And that's got some pretty unique ways of doing connectivity and adding additional functionality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think Monterey is also a very interesting project. And I think it also, the way we started, you know, planning for this, probably had the same background in terms of, uh, you know, customer requirements and customer questions, uh, similar to Capitola, right? Uh, Again, when we're talking about Project Monterey, what we're talking about here is leveraging. Um, smart NIC capabilities uh, on your or through your hypervisor platform. Now, when you talk about smart NICs, one of the things, of course, that they do extremely well is moving data around. And that is one of those, you know, key things that happens in any AI ML p- platform or any application that, you know, uses a large data set. And the same applies to, uh, like we said, with Project Capitola, we need to have sufficient memory in order to be capable to load those memory uh, sets or at least access those memory or data sets in memory in some shape or form, right? Now, in order to move it between hosts, you need to have a, a NIC that is actually capable of driving the amount of throughput required to move it within a, you know, least amount of time. And that's where the smart NIC comes into play. Now, of course, there are multiple aspects when you talk about a smart NIC. First of all, these NICs are typical 
I wouldn't say are typical NICs anymore, right? They're not typical network interface cards. If you look at these network interface cards, it is almost like a small motherboard. It contains all of the different components that you have on a motherboard as well. And it provides all of those added benefits as well as a result. So a smart NIC, for instance, could run different types of components. Uh, you could imagine that for us in, in our particular case, when we talk about VMware, is that you could potentially run the hypervisor on top of a smart NIC. And this is actually something that we're actively exploring. Now, you may ask yourself, why would you want to do this? Well, you can imagine that there are customers that will want to use uh, all of their CPU resources for their workloads while actually having their, their control plane, their management stack sitting on the smart NIC, not interfering with those workloads in any shape or form. And the other thing, of course, that you can do at that particular point in time is you could start offloading certain components to a smart NIC. You may not want to offload the full hypervisor, but you can potentially imagine that you're offloading certain aspects that the hypervisor would normally be responsible for. The networking stack would be one of those. You could do some form of routing uh, on that particular smart NIC. But you can also imagine that, you know, at some point in time, you would be able to offload some of the storage capabilities, something like vSAN, for instance, could move into that particular uh, stack and actually run it quite efficiently. So there are a lot of opportunities with these type of solutions. Now, first and foremost, of course, in my opinion, is, is the offload mechanism. I think that is already key. If you look at the amount of cycles today that you know, is being used on a host level, uh, running tasks that, you know, where, that don't necessarily benefit the application itself, there's a lot of cycles being lost. So uh, in order to send let's say five terabytes worth of data across the wire, not only does the NIC need to do a lot of work, but if you don't have any offloading mechanisms, of course, the CPU itself also needs to move that data around. So if you can offload that to the NIC, then you free up resources on the CPU that could be used for something else. Now that something else could of course be, you know, application, regular application work. It could be anything else that the hypervisor is responsible for, but that, you know, could potentially help a lot uh, when it comes to uh, efficiency uh, but also just the speed in terms of which you will be able to move these data, larger data sets around or, you know, copy files or whatever it ends up uh, being. And some of you may have already seen some of these devices floating around. Now, the interesting part here is, in my opinion, that the smart NICs that we've seen so far, so there are a couple of vendors already doing smart NICs. There's actually probably a handful, like four or five. Now, the key partners that we, from a VM perspective, are working with are Pensando, NVIDIA, and Intel. And the devices that we would expect that we will be able to leverage are not the device that we have available today, but devices that will be available in you know 12 or 18, 18 months. So we already have a better program running for Project Monterey. But what I would expect is that you know the key functionality that customers would be looking for, where it actually becomes extremely beneficial to offload certain capabilities to those smart NICs. I think you will probably need some, you know, one of those newer types of devices which isn't available just yet, but will be available pretty soon. I think there's there's two things that interest me about, I mean, there's a lot of things that interest me about this whole program um, conceptually. One is, this is another example of that continued march around, you know, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, there was just like, let's just make the CPUs more and more powerful, more and more powerful, more and more powerful, denser, denser, denser. But then we started realizing, well, maybe the CPUs shouldn't do everything, right? Maybe your core CPU should not have to do everything. Maybe it's not the best thing for, for doing everything in your platform and started moving to moving some of those processes off the peripherals. And I think obviously one of the best examples of that is GPUs, right? Uh, that makes more sense to do a lot of workloads that the CPU itself isn't really fitted for. And this is, I think, 
the work around smart NICs and, you know, specifically Monterey with, with VMware is a good example of like, how can we offload some of these services? How can we make some of these services more flexible by decentralizing some of this work? And I think the storage aspect, what can be done with uh, smart NICs and offloads from an NVMe TCP perspective, et cetera, et cetera, that's going, um, makes for some exciting work, particularly on-prem. And I, I think the other part around this that interests me, excites me, uh, whatever, is the drive to change how computing and everything is done on-premises in particular, uh, where customers are looking to convert some of their on-premises environments to be more cloud-like. I'm using my invisible finger quotes again, but for completely different purposes. Right? One of the things I mentioned on the last, the last podcast that we did right, is that one, one of the interests around customers with on-premises is to be able to innovate with hardware and software in ways they can't necessarily do in the public clouds because they don't have the control. They don't have the choice around all these different vendors and things like that from a, a, a peripheral, from a hardware, a compute, a storage, whatever perspective. And I think this is a really interesting and exciting example of where, where VMware is going. Not particularly a question, just, just some, some, some color. I think that I find this, this whole project really cool. Yeah, I think it's a very valid point. And I think the same applies from a GPU perspective, right? If you look at some of the GPU accelerator cards that are available today, and you look at what we have available in public cloud environments, uh, they're not you know, the same. You're not really certain what you are getting. And I think that is one of the benefits of having you know, still certain workloads on premises, whether that is all workloads, some workloads, you know, taking a hybrid approach, that that is perfectly fine. But I think there are, you know, good reasons in general to run some of these workloads on premises. And if you look at some of the DPU uh, capabilities, so these smart near capabilities, I was looking at some of the performance um, tests that they've already uh, already done. And if you look at some of the benefits, it's just it's 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 crazy. Some of these newer uh, these these newer next generation firewalls that we we are starting to see NSX being one of those examples of it, but of course there are other vendors that have similar solutions. When you run those solutions on top of a, a smart NIC, we're seeing you know in in some cases easily seventy five to eighty percent performance improvements. But not only that, you're also offloading those CPU cycles from a regular CPU to that smart NIC. So they're also you know seeing the the the, the CPU capacity uh, lowering by 85 90% or whatever it ends up uh, ends up being so basically you're capable of driving a lot more traffic with from a cpu perspective a lot less resources of course those resources it's not completely fair because those resources are offloaded to a completely different device and that device comes at a cost as well but it will help drive you drive the efficiency of the solution and it may also you know in the end make your solution more secure because you're isolating certain components, if you're, you're separating certain components on different platforms, et cetera. So there's, you know, there's all these different types of use cases here, why I think, you know, smart NICs could be very interesting. Now, having said that, one thing I do want to point out, because I think this is something that has been skipped in all presentations, these devices are not cheap. You're not buying a, you know, $150 or $200 NIC. We're talking about you know two thousand dollars easily for these types of devices, so that is something to take in, into consideration. But you know, if you have the need for it, just to give an example, uh, we were recently talking to a customer, and this customer actually has a highly secure secured environment, and they have a need for firewalls or virtual firewalls on every single host. Now the throughput requirements were so extremely high that if they were running their virtual firewalls, it was almost impossible to run any workload 
you know, next to those firewalls, the, the, the type of CPUs that they would need to have, they would need to have quad socket service, et cetera, et cetera. It just became too complex. So by leveraging these types of uh, capabilities, by leveraging smart NICs, they could simply offload their firewall to the smart NIC and then free up all of those resources for their regular workload. So for, you know, for companies like that, it, you know, it's a no-brainer. It makes a lot of sense. And so it sounds like a lot of these, you know, advanced workloads are driving a lot of these newer projects, right? We've yeah. got memory optimization, memory extension that we can pool larger memory. And now, like you said, offloading some of the less critical or being able to offload even some of the resources to another device then frees up again, more resources for some of these advanced, like you said, AI, ML type stuff. Really, I mean, just where we're going is just these compute devices are becoming incredible and what you can do with them. No, for sure. And we've seen that, that the uh, the last couple of years, right? A lot of the uh, the announcements at VMworld, the past two, three years, were all around you know AI and ML capabilities. Uh, some of the partnerships that we've started with NVIDIA, for instance, so like we had the vSAN ready nodes, we now also have those types of configurations for uh, NVIDIA specifically. So we're working closely with NVIDIA and not only providing our software stack, but they are actually layering their software stack on top of it and including GPUs for specific server models. So you know when you buy one of those systems that actually runs well end to end. And this is something that's not easy, right? This is something that a lot of people tend to forget because all of this AI and ML stuff, and I know a lot of people are talking about it, but there's a lot of companies starting AI and ML projects. But if you look at the statistics, I think it's over 40% of all AI and ML projects right now that never go into production. And it's not because, you know, these companies are not smart, but building an infrastructure that actually runs these projects efficient uh, in, in an efficient way and not just efficient from a performance perspective, but also from a cost standpoint is not easy. So, you know, that is one of the reasons you see all of these different types of projects popping up because there's more and more data that needs to be accessed. There's more and more data that needs to be analyzed. And as a result, a lot of data needs to be moved around as well. So, you know, providing a platform that actually allows you to do that in an easy way is, I think, is very important. Yeah, I mean, there's so much... Like you said, there's so much data. I mean, it's continuous real-time data. So being able to process that as well as compute that and store that and move that, I mean, that's all that, that's incredible amounts of throughput processing. I mean, just, it all comes into play when you're talking about that stuff. Exactly. You know, I had another question that kind of comes up when we talk about kind of data and it made me think about it when you started talking about stretching the memory where in Europe, every seems like every time I talk to a customer in Europe, we talk about stretch clusters. Is that still a driving factor in Europe and the regions over in that area? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've seen it with vSAN, uh, stretch clustering from a enterprise license perspective is probably one of the most popular features that we have available. And, you know, I've definitely seen it with other vendors as well. I think I still get questions on a weekly basis about the uh, the white paper that uh, I wrote years ago. For whatever reason, people still have that PDF around. Well, we have it available uh, on core.vm.com. People are still reading the PDF for whatever reason. It actually has my name at the bottom. So they still send me emails with, with questions about HA and DRS and 
you know, uniform configurations versus non-uniform configurations, APD and PDLs and whatever it is. It, it is crazy the amount of uh, stress class configurations that we see being adopted. But I mean, there's a good reason for it, right? In Europe, relatively compared to the US, uh, the distances are relatively short. I mean, if you look at the Netherlands, for instance, you can drive from the top to the bottom of the country within two and a half, three hours. So that also means that adopting a stress cluster uh, infrastructure is, is pretty straightforward. Forward. The connections between the cities are relatively cheap. Um, they're relatively low latency. So adopting those technologies is, I wouldn't say it's easy, uh, but it's much easier than it is in the US for sure. To be fair, your speed limits are a little higher than they are here in the US. So, you know, so you, can, you can drive places much faster. For sure. <laughs> well, that's Germany, right? It's not in, not the same in Holland anymore. Our speed limit uh, changed not too long ago. But yeah, in Germany, it's uh, it, there's no, well, if you're lucky, depending on the road you take, there's no limit. I, I think what's what's it, what's also changing around stretching storage or active active or whatever you want to call it is, I think, also the introduction of cloud computing, right, uh, around hyperscalers. And I think one of the questions that comes up quite a bit these days is not just about how do I make my data centers active active or how do I better leverage um, both of my locations or how do I make my data more available or et cetera, et cetera, within shorter distances, but how do I make my data available in multiple availability zones, right? This comes up quite a bit these days around, hey, I'm running in US East 1. How do I protect my data and make sure it's available in US East 2 or whatnot over those failovers? And I, I so I think that's that whole concept is starting to grow actually a lot more um, in, in the US in particular, at least the, the, the chats I've been having, because I said it's always been a conversation in EMEA for us around stretch doors, but stretching and protecting in the public cloud uh, is coming up quite a bit because, you know, there are there are situations where availability zones in in hyperscalers become not available. And it's not a reason not to use the cloud. Like that's a silly, silly conversation. We have failures on premises and that's not a reason to have a, to not use it. Um, but it's a reason to have a disaster recovery plan. It's a reason to have data protection. Um, and, you know, and then certainly uh, VMware, um, and I'm sure you can talk more to this, Duncan, is that stretch, stretch compute, stretch storage is not limited to deployments on-prem. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a very valid point. And it's also something that I've noticed um, is starting to come up more and more. It is funny because when you talk about these public cloud environments, when you talk about cloud native applications, you know, the whole world will tell you that, first of all, all of the cloud native applications are supposed to be stateless. And then um, the state typically or the data is stored in a, a distributed system. So when it comes to availability, you don't need a stress cluster. Your infrastructure doesn't need to be resilient in any shape or form, right? Because we have all of this magic happening within the application layer. And if anything fails, then automatically things will fail over to other parts of, you know, your cloud infrastructure. Reality, however, is that in the majority of cases, what we've seen is that the applications are not that smart. Uh, in some cases, sure, they may have some kind of, you know, availability mechanism built in, but in a lot of cases, that is actually not true. So there in that particular scenario, they will still rely on the infrastructure. And if you don't have a storage system, which is capable of replicating data from A to B, whether that is, you know, active active, so synchronous replication or async replication, you'll end up in a scenario where if a complete region fails, you now won't be able to access those virtual machines or your data set anymore. And I think that is, you know, 
where solutions, you know, like stretch clustering come into play and whether it is something that, you know, where you leverage vSAN for, or whether it's the vSphere Metro storage cluster solutions, which are supported by many different uh, partners that we have. It solves a lot of those uh, challenges and those also work in the public cloud. And we actually do see a relatively large adoption of those different types of techniques within the cloud for that particular reason, because it is a very fairly easy way to make sure that an application is available, even if you know a full data center all of a sudden disappears. And yeah, sure, you could try to solve that by making uh, or by putting the, that uh, responsibility on the uh, app owner or on the developer. Uh, but what we've seen so far is that in most cases, they don't even know where to start. The other interesting thing is that uh, one of the things that I've noticed is I've had a lot of conversations with uh, customers over the past 10 years about business continuity and disaster recovery. Well, first of all, a lot of them don't even know what the difference is between those two, right? Disaster recovery is something different than business continuity. And secondly, one of the things that I also noticed is that when it comes to things like a backup and recovery, disaster recovery strategy, et cetera, most or almost every single customer I speak to will have something in place for their on-prem data center. But when it comes to the cloud and you ask them, okay, how are you backing up your data? Do you have any type of archival platforms? Uh, do you have a DR strategy in this for that, for that particular environment? In half of the cases, they have no idea because they feel that, well, we didn't create that environment that is actually owned by a business unit. Uh, the developers actually went out to Amazon and you know purchased a couple of virtual machines or whatever it ends up being. So we're hoping that they are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, guess what? Those developers probably don't even know the requirements that you may have from a regulatory perspective. So it's, it's not you know the best answer. And in, in a lot of those cases, what we typically see happening is that you see those applications which may have been running natively in one of those hyperscaler environments. Now, all of a sudden, they are moving to VMware Cloud on AWS. They're moving to VMware Cloud on Azure or you know whatever, whatever it ends up being simply because it's easier for the IT staff to guarantee that the data that is being stored is being replicated synchronous, asynchronous, it's being backed up, it's being archived, et cetera, et cetera. So they can actually adhere uh, regulations that they need to adhere to. It is it is a bit, you know, of a wild west still in some cases. And I think that's really a key point is it's it, it really comes down to data governance is, is the question here, right? Do you want to ensure protection at the infrastructure layer or do you want to uh, put the requirement on your application developers to make sure that these things are available and have DR slash BC plans. And that's a kind of a tricky thing. And I think particular in particularly in the today's world around even things like ransomware and so forth, can you necessarily have to rely on different teams to make sure that things are protected in different places and recoverable? Um, I, I think having those plans across the board and having consistent approach to that um, is, uh, is, is a important part of that overall data governance. And I think wh who you rely on, whether it's the infrastructure team, the application team, or potentially both to do that is something that all organizations need to have that discussion. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And it's also one of the reasons whenever we talk to customers about cloud native applications, when we whenever we talk to customers about adopting public cloud, and whether that's native public cloud or something like VMware Cloud on AWS or whatever it ends up being, we always tell customers to ensure 
that, you know, they don't only focus on the application. They don't just focus on the, you know, the DevOps team or the SRE team. They make sure that they also get the folks involved, which are now managing those traditional systems. Because guess what? Those people have been doing it for 20 years. So they know how to back up those solutions. They know how to make sure that they are uh, replicated. They know also how to test these different types of failure scenarios, because this is one of the things that I also think is missing in a lot of cases, even with the stretch cluster solutions that we have out there today, right? I was talking to a customer not too long ago, and we were talking about stress cluster configurations, and it was just a traditional storage system. So it was not a vSAN setup or whatever. Uh, it was just a traditional storage system. They were asking me about a particular failure scenario, how that would work. So I, I returned the question. I said, okay, but you should know how it works because there's a, there's a failure metrics here. And it's probably test number three on the metric. So well, on the matrix, have you tested it? And like, well, we actually did not test it because we didn't have the time to run the tests when it was implemented. We needed to go in production literally the next day. I said, but you just bought, you know, a storage system or two storage systems, right? Active, active setup, extremely expensive connections in between. You've duplicated everything that you have. You literally spend millions, but you couldn't spend a day 24 hours, 48 hours testing it, come on, it's, it makes no sense. So, you know, that's why I always tell customers when they're moving towards that cloud native route, get the people involved that are managing the applications today as well, because hopefully they have been testing those different scenarios. They understand what some of the challenges are. They know what the requirements are, so they can help you actually running through those uh, plans, probably ho hopefully make it more secure and more reliable. It's amazing when you talk to customers, like you said, that they just disregard or think, oh yeah, somebody's got it covered and they just don't. And, or like you said, they haven't even tested it. I haven't had time. Well, when it fails is not the time to test because you're not going to make it through that. You know, it's funny. You mentioned that, that stretch cluster article, I get a lot of comments on that too. And actually I've been talking to engineering about that and they're like, well, we need to update this. And I said, I know, but there's actually, there's a lot of stuff that's being worked, you know, hopefully with some of our VVOLs is one of the things we're working on, right? And so once that comes out, the plan is to hopefully rewrite that. So I may be calling you on the, so we can rewrite that article. Yeah. And especially with VVOLs, it's a question that we've had for, for, for ages, right? I know Cody is not supposed to be talking about VVOLs on this podcast, but I'm more than happy to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> because I think it's a great solution. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of customers waiting for stretch clustering when it comes to VVOLs, because it will allow you to do decide on a per virtual machine or per volume basis, which one you want to replicate, how you want to replicate it, et cetera, et cetera. So that is similar to what we have available for vSAN right now. And it is one of those things that customers truly appreciate. Instead of doing it on a per LUN basis, do it on a per volume basis. And in this particular case, that would be a you know, per VVOL basis. I think it will solve a lot of problems and a lot of challenges and just make life a lot easier. So yeah, hopefully that is something that will be released soon because that will make a lot of people happy. I mean, since you, since you brought it up, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very <laughs> excited about that project, right? I, it's something since I've been talking and presenting about VVOLs for many, 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 many years. And it's always probably number one, number two question that comes up is, hey, stretch storage, active, active. And so seeing that project really happening between, between VMware and its partner storage companies and really getting into design uh, and starting to write the code right now, like it's a really exciting project. I'm, I'm very excited to deliver that to customers because there is a, obviously a, a clear need there. 
And because of the architecture and partnership that Vivols offers up in general, you know, between VMware and its, its partner companies, um, we can really do this right. Not to saying it was done wrong with, with standard VMFS. It's just like, there's some cooler things that we can do because of the architecture of Evol. So it's, it's some pretty exciting stuff. For sure. Yeah. Lots of exciting stuff coming out. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Also, what was your podcast? That's the Unexplored Territory podcast. So, you know, if you have some free time available, I think we have about 11 episodes out when this airs. And we have one with Cody. So uh, there's a whole bunch of others out there talking about networking, disaster recovery, uh, carbon black. We basically try to cover as many different uh, topics as we can. So make sure to listen to the Unexplored Territory podcast. I'll have a lot of the project details. I'll put those in the show notes so people can look and research more if they're interested in either Project Monterey or Project Capitola. Cody, you want to wrap it up for us? Absolutely. Well, you know, Jason, um, this podcast isn't 100% reads, but you know, we are always 100% right. So thanks, Duncan. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Finish it up, Jason. All right. Thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you on our next episode. Have a great day. Bye.